Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. My name is Stephanie Aliaga, and I'm an analyst on the Global Market Insights Strategy Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Typically on this podcast, we interview one guest to discuss an important topic or theme in the markets and economy. However, given the very broad implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've decided to structure this episode a little differently. Of course, the most important impact of this conflict is its human toll, and our thoughts and prayers are with the Ukrainian people in this dark hour. However, the invasion also raises a host of questions for investors. What are the potential geopolitical outcomes? What does this mean for energy supplies and input prices? How could this impact the global economic environment and fiscal monetary policy? And how should investors navigate all this? To address these issues, I'm joined today by three guests. First, we have retired Major General Masson Robson. General Robson has served for over 34 years in the U.S. Marines, served as military assistant to the Secretary of Defense, and is a member of the Academy Security's geopolitical team. Second, we have David Macaron, an equity research analyst at J.P. Morgan Asset Management with over 25 years of experience as an investor and an analyst in the global energy sector. Finally, we are joined by Dr. David Kelly, our chief global strategist here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, who normally hosts these calls. So welcome, General Robson, David, and Dr. Kelly to Insights Now. So General Robson, this war is barely two weeks old, and the situation has been changing rapidly. But as we record this on the afternoon of Monday, March 7th, what is the current state of matters? Yeah, so I think first we want to look at how we got to where we are. So if you look at the, <clears throat> from Putin's standpoint, he looks out across the world and he says, gosh, I went, you know, I went into Georgia in, uh, in 08, I went into Crimea in 15, uh, since then, I, I really didn't get any reaction or pushback when I did it. There's a little bit of talk, but that was it. No sanctions, no no real issues to get my attention. Uh, then you look at what's going on with Brexit, uh, what could be misread as, you know, is NATO and, and EU, are they really unified? Or are they really strong? Or are they a bit bifurcated right now? You've got the United States that just came out of Afghanistan, uh, certainly downsized in, uh, in Iraq, and certainly uh, even more downsized in Syria. So although we, we, we initially stated a line in all three of those uh, war zones, we, we really didn't stay the, the, the course to see it completed. Um, and I'm not, that's not a criticism. I'm just saying from Putin's standpoint, it's, gosh, does that mean that they're war-weary, that they're tired of uh, their, their sons and daughters dying at someplace halfway around the world? And, sort of, of course, those statements have been made uh, in the political uh, campaigns and so forth. So all that could be certainly misread that, hey, I, I should be able to do this without a problem. Uh, so what you have today, you got 1.5 million refugees that have left the country. You've got the potential for 2 million plus more. Who's to know how many will go? The uh, tremendous economic burden that this could plausibly be on the EU and NATO. Uh, you've got a temporary and fragile ceasefire for the evacuation corridors that's allegedly are set up. Uh, will he hold his ground on that? Will he remain the ceasefire? Does he do it long enough for the refugees to get out? This is no small timeline for that many refugees to actually flee, particularly when so much destruction has been done, bridges have been taken out, roads have been dismantled, so trains have been dismantled. Then you have the key cities under siege. You have the rubble with those uh, bombardments. You have Russia's fires appearing to be somewhat indiscriminate at this point, heavy shelling amid... Uh, around Kyiv, 
humanitarian crisis in every city, uh, food, water, injuries, electricity, lack of medical supplies, lack of the ability to get to people and rescue them, uh, the emergency aspect of it. 90% to 95% of the Russian assets that they have in the country, combat power-wise, have been committed, which means there isn't a whole lot of flexibility now to shift to make somewhere else the main effort. You, you're pretty much now fighting across the spectrum without the ability to reinforce for success a place like Kiev. Um, is, is Putin's army strong enough to pull this off? Well, yeah, it is. It's just a question of how messy it gets. It's a question of how long it takes. Um, you certainly have protests now cropping up in Russia, probably not overly significant for a guy like Putin, who I don't think pays a whole lot of attention to things like that. You've got no-fly zone requests by Ukraine. NATO and the U.S. have said no. Uh, the risk of uh, two nuclear powers shooting down each other's airplanes, risky calculus to put that into the equation. Uh, you have sanctions in place. You have sanctions effects growing, howbeit. Easily could take months for those of those sanctions to have the type of effect that's going to cause Putin to maybe blink and see this is worse than I thought. Heavy maintenance, logistics, uh, problems and challenges from Putin's invasion force, exacerbated by the fact that uh, they did you know three months' worth of exercises before they invaded. They came across on five-pronged attack. Each one of those uh, different uh, attack corridors requires its own logistics, maintenance, uh, line of communication. That's a lot of logistics. And the deeper they go into the country, uh, the, the longer that line of communication and line of logistics is going to be and the more vulnerable it will be. You've got the bridges that have been damaged. You have the roads. You have the mud uh, in the, spring, the growing springtime that's off-road, which makes it difficult for track vehicles to get off the road. So now you've got long columns that are stacked up. You've got the javelin missiles that have been taken sent in. You've got the surface-to-air missiles that are uh, compounding that problem of an invasion force. And you've got uh, the deeper the Russian force gets in, really the vulnerability behind them becomes a, a, a real concern for them. It's like our march up to Baghdad in 2003. You know, initially the, the, the enemy was in front of us, but the deeper we went into Iraq, the insurgency came in behind and created rear echelon issues. So if you don't hold those corridors that you're reinforcing your logistics and supplies through and maintenance through, then you're going to wind up with uh, an insurgency capability, and certainly it appears Ukraine is unified. They don't see this as a liberation force. They see this as an occupation invasion force, and that will motivate them to increase uh, the size and the problems of rear echelon guerrilla-type activity and warfare. Right. And, and to your point, it, it looks like this war hasn't gone as Putin expected. Did he just make a grave miscalculation here? And if he did, like, what exactly did he miscalculate? I certainly think he made a uh, miscalculation. I think he miscalculated uh, sort of where the state of affairs were in regard to how the world would view an incursion by Russia into a sovereign country. That miscalculation goes back, as I said before, to, to Georgia to his invasion into Crimea, to his threats uh, of uh, the, his warning this time and space buffer, um, his posturing along the border, and nothing really done that would cause him to blink before he comes in. No posturing of forces, no moving forward, pretty much saying we can do this through negotiations and through talk. 
I think he read all that uh, along with what we were saying, talking about a minute ago, the Brexit, the evacuation of Afghanistan, the war weariness of the world, and the fact the world just doesn't seem to be unified, particularly with COVID, with all the other issues going on right now. There's a whole, there's less unification across the globe right now than there has been probably in decades. So I think he didn't see that the world would come together and say, stop, we're not going to support this. The fact that, that Europe has totally unified, NATO has totally unified, have 100% accountability of the members saying this is unacceptable. Even across the globe, for the first time, you've got the, the Pacific Rim people saying, nope, we're not going to put up with this either, uh, and making strong statements about sanctions from places like Japan. You've got a U.N. Security Council that's voted almost unanimously that this is wrong, Eritrea being the only holdout besides Russia that didn't vote with that. That would not have been the vote even two weeks ago, let alone would that be what we would expect right now. So, yeah, I think he's definitely miscalculated world opinion about his incursion into into a country like um you know, here in, in Eastern Europe, that Ukraine is a really important enough calculus to the world that they would sit up and take note. And particularly when he's a, a, uh, a nuclear power, are they willing to bump heads with a nuclear power that plausibly risks the ability of a nuclear exchange over a country like Ukraine? Definitely a miscalculation on his part. And the human loss in all of this is, is very tragic. Um, and, you know, looking, looking forward, though, I know it's incredibly hard to predict or make assumptions about the current state of matters, but what are some of the scenarios in which you see this unfolding? Yeah, you're absolutely right. that It's, it's almost impossible to predict. But I, I think there are probably three scenarios that are plausible. One that people are going to talk about, I, I I just have a hard time seeing him continuing from Ukraine and into other NATO countries. I think NATO now is definitely on guard, and, on, and they will move forces forward that will make that uh, a much more dangerous calculus for him to try to move into other former Soviet satellite countries that are now into NATO and have an agreement that NATO will indeed defend. Uh, and the U.S. has already said, we're going to be there. Then you have the three what I think are plausible, one, he goes in, he seizes Ukraine, he takes the government down, he sets up a Russian puppet government in uh, in Kiev, and then he endures sanctions for who knows how many decades, which would be really interesting uh, calculus as a president for life, that in the last half of his presidency for potentially 20 years, he is doing nothing but but sitting on the sideline getting more and more devastated economically. What Putin really wants in the long run is to be respected, to have a seat at the table, to be a power broker with other world leaders, to have his voice count. That's not going to happen if he is sitting under sanctions for the next decades. Then you've got the case where he stops short. At some point, he continues to, to create all kinds of destruction in the effort to create a leverage point that he can say, I will stop this devastation if you will give me A, B, or C. Unlikely that NATO and the U.S. will be as likely to give him that. Plausibly, Ukraine could do that. That the president of Ukraine could say, hey, look, yeah, I'm willing to do that if you'll, if you'll stop doing what you're doing, give us our country back and back off. 
I promise we won't join NATO. I promise, you know, this, that, and the other. I think that's the more plausible scenario, and I think that's probably the bigger leverage point that he has right now. And the final one is he just, it becomes so painful for him, for Putin, and so expensive. And the risk of defeat is so bad. And think in terms that, that this could easily go into a decade-long guerrilla warfare where he doesn't begin to have the forces to be able to hold the country in occupation, that he says, I have to find an off-ramp that gives me a graceful way to get out, to pull back, to not complete what I was saying, but at the same time claim victory because I did indeed, at least, I stopped the quote-unquote incursion by Ukrainians into Russia, the you know pro-Nazi government uh, uh, architecture that he's described out of Ukrainian this Cretan province for him. So he could certainly turn all that into a positive uh, message for himself of, I've, I've defeated that, I've solved that, I now have the ability to come back, but in coming back, I need these guarantees. The problem is, I don't know that any of those will be sufficient for the world not to say, we still want to see world, uh, war crime trials. And that will definitely be uh, I think something that Putin will be unwilling to sign something if he thinks he's then going to go on trial for war crimes. So I think it's a messy exit, any of them, but I think that there are plausible off-ramps that, that stop short of nuclear exchange, stop short of further incursions into Eastern Europe uh, and NATO countries, and provides an opportunity for, for Putin to back out. But he needs an off-ramp, and all negotiations are about identifying an off-ramp that's mutually acceptable to some degree by both parties. Well, thank you, Mastin. That was really helpful perspective on the situation and the scenarios that may unfold. Um, David, I'd like to turn it over to you. Uh, I know you've been having a lot of conversations about this in recent weeks, and an unfortunate stranglehold that Russia has on the global economy is its importance as a commodity exporter. How can we cope with the removal of Russian supply to oil markets? Is there spare capacity that we can tap into? Stephanie, it's a great question. Um, Russian exports of oil and petroleum products are about 7% of global demand. So that's a lot. Uh, and so their removal could have a huge impact on, on oil markets. I think the way to close some of the gap is OPEC has some spare capacity led by Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, the US supply is actually growing again, um, maybe not like it was, but it's growing. Uh, and, and there's the prospect of a, a nuclear deal with Iran. So uh, we may be able to close uh, a portion of that gap, but um, if most of the world lost access to Russian oil, uh, prices would probably have to go a fair bit higher uh, from here. And w what can we do in the US? Can we restart the Keystone pipeline? Can we ship more ni liquid natural gas to Europe? Well, energy is capital intensive and typically uh, long lead time, sometimes multiple years in nature. Uh, the good thing is U.S. Shell can be uh, a little quicker, maybe maybe as soon as a year or so, uh, but that might not be fast enough. The, pro the problem for energy companies more broadly is they've made the mistake many times of thinking that the price today will be the price of tomorrow, uh, only to see that not turn out. So it's not clear how aggressively the industry is going to respond to this price. Um, and in the same way, Keystone could help 
get more Canadian oil out to uh, to U.S. markets and global markets uh, and be exported to Europe. But this has been a political football for uh, over a decade, and you know the prospect is probably no sooner than two years away. If if the participants uh, ha had an interest in, in in taking on that risk once again, um, when it comes to natural gas, uh, the U.S. is producing almost as much as it 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 can in terms of uh, LNG exports. There's probably some upside, and more of the cargoes that are out there in, around the world can head toward Europe, uh, and so that can help close some of the gap, but probably not all of it. So it does seem like there's no quick fix, quick fix to the loss of Russian supply. And, you know, before we got into this juncture, we were talking about supply chains finally beginning to ease and inflation on its way to decelerating later this year. Dr. Kelly, how does this change your inflation outlook? Well, unfortunately, it does prolong the, uh, the inflation spike that we've seen. Uh, I think that when we look at <clears throat> numbers we're going to get for March inflation, uh, we could see something like 8% year over year on CPI. Um, and then if you track forward, if you, if you assume that, that, that this is a long drawn out problem with both, uh, both in terms of the effects on Ukraine and the effects on um, Russian oil, uh, you could have you know, inflation running pretty significantly high all the way through this year. The other thing that happens is that the longer you have supply chain issue inflation or oil issue inflation, it tends to seep, you know, that's transitory by nature, but it tends to seep into more permanent inflation because people want wage increases because it costs more to, to fill their tanks. Uh, people begin to expect inflation. They say, they say, well, it's more like a 1970s environment and people feel more comfortable pushing up their prices. People want to buy ahead of higher prices. All of these things lead to sort of an inflation psychology which can make it sticky. So it's starting as transitory, but enough transitory inflation for long enough can get a little sticky. Um, and so I do think that it, it does push up the um, inflation outlook. One other thing, you know, which has got not, nothing to do with Ukraine, which I think could be important here, is there is, I still think, a danger of a, a widespread outbreak of COVID in China, which could also worsen this supply chain issue. So I think, you know, unfortunately, oh, you know, keep on thinking that we're about to turn the corner on the supply chain issue, but uh, this clearly pushes that day um, further ahead. I think eventually inflation will calm down somewhat, but it's not going to get to the low levels uh, that we saw in the uh, last decade uh, for a long time here. And the U.S. has come a long way in its own energy independence from decades past. But oil is global in nature, and, and consumers are still going to see the impact of higher oil prices at the pump. What kind of impact do you see this having on U.S. growth? Well, they are going to see that this. And I think for the United States, it's it's very much an issue of, um, of gasoline uh, as opposed to in Europe, where there's a really big natural gas problem, natural gas is much more regional. Oil is, as, as you say, a, a global commodity. Uh, there are different issues. I mean, one of them is that it actually literally costs more money. We, th we think that, you know, if, if oil prices, you know, as of this morning, they're running at about $123 per barrel of WTI. If we kept that going all year, we think it could add about $1,000 to the annual spending of, of individual households. And of course, if they spend that more money on gas, they will spend it, spend less on um, food, on clothing, on basics, particularly for lower income and rural households. So there is a real drag on the economy from that. And that, that's an issue. 
A second issue is it can have an effect on confidence. I mean, people are very aware of the price of a gallon of gasoline. Um, you know, there is no price in America which is better known. You can't drive two city blocks in America without figuring out what the price of gas, a gallon of gasoline is. And because of that, it has an inordinate effect on people's psychology. Uh, and so it, it'll probably show up in, in a, a drop in consumer confidence. And if this were the 1970s, I would say we're in real trouble here. But I think the U.S. has got some advantages right now. One of them is that over the years, first of all, energy is a smaller share of total spending. We're using more fuel-efficient cars um, and also and fuel-efficient technology in general. And also people have got simply richer and they're, they're spending more on a whole variety of things. So energy is a smaller part of the economy. And very importantly, we are now pretty much self-sufficient in liquid fuels. Uh, so if you go back even as recently as 2008, um, we saw um, the cost of net energy imports into the United States was about 3% of GDP. It was an enormous tax on the economy. And the, you know, we were spending more money and the Saudis were getting rich off it. Today, we're basically at a net neutral in terms of imports. So, yeah, it's, it's tough that American consumers spend more. But on the other hand, American energy producers actually get more money out of it. So the money s cycles around in the economy. And that, that gives us some protection. And then the one other thing I would say that's important is the cyclical position of the economy. Because it just so happens that this is occurring at a time when the pandemic is fading. We're seeing big increases in people's travel, entertainment, leisure. There's a, you know, we were expecting about a 5% quarter, the second quarter of this year, in terms of real GDP growth. This might take a little off it, but it still should be a pretty good quarter. And also there's a lot of pent-up demand for workers. So the other thing we worry about, you know, I, I've never worried about American consumers getting too scared to spend. American consumers don't scare. They, they, they spend, uh, you know, when the, when the going gets tough. But I do worry about American businesses. They tend to pull back on hiring, but there's such an excess demand for, for workers right now. We, we've got four and a half million more job openings than unemployed people. So even if you shave that number down a bit, you've still got excess demand for labor that keeps labor markets tight. It keeps wage income going up. And so I think the American economy, if it doesn't get any worse, I think it can weather this, even though it's, a, you know, obviously it's a great tragedy for the world and a significant problem for Europe, I think the U.S. economy should be able to weather this uh, without a recession. Mm, that is comforting to hear. And, and yeah, it does seem that the U.S. is a little bit more insulated from this than what maybe the Europeans are. So I guess I would turn it over back to you, David. Um, how can the EU respond to this supply shock, given how much more their economies are dependent on um, Russian exports? There's no doubt about it. Natural gas is a big concern in Europe. Um, if, if Russia decided to slow or stop the flow of, of gas to the rest of Europe, this could be a very difficult situation um, heading into the uh, restocking season over the summer and, and looking forward to next winter. Uh, for now, you're likely to see an increased reliance on nuclear and coal um, and increased LNG imports. Uh, but there's been a very quick and important paradigm shift in terms of Europe on energy policy. It's clear Europe will seek new and, and more diversified sources of natural gas, and that should drive a, really a, a global investment cycle in, in liquefied natural gas or LNG. Uh, so we may see uh, new facilities built in the U.S. And, and in Canada and other places around the world to export that gas to Europe and be, become more reliable providers. Um, and while there may be an increase in fossil fuel investment around the world, this should also see a pretty material uh, step up and acceleration in uh, the adoption of electric vehicles, 
and the uh, use of renewable generation to help reduce carbon and reduce reliance on fossil fuels as a whole over a longer period of time. But the near-term outlook still seems unfortunate for Europeans' utility bills. Um, Dr. Kelly, what might this mean for the European economy? Well, I think the European economy is, frankly, today on a bit of a knife edge. Uh, if we've seen massive increases in uh, in the cost of natural gas in Europe, we're going to and, and in gasoline, uh, that you know they pay more than twice what we do for a gallon of gasoline, so it's it's pretty expensive to start with. The problem is that there are a lot of lower and middle income households in Europe who, like in the United States, live paycheck to paycheck. And if they have to spend, you know, if their spending on energy goes from 10% of their budget to 20% of the budget overnight, they're going to have to cut back somewhere. And if they cut back on spending on, on eating out at restaurants or, or clothes or food or, or, or entertainment, that would be enough, I think, to put the Europe in recession. It doesn't have to be this way. It's, the fate is not written in the stars here. If the Europeans can quickly agree on a stabilization fund by which they put extra income into the pockets of consumers who are being stretched by this, that, I think, can keep the European economy afloat. I think it's, it'll be a really interesting you know, uh, period of time over the next few months to see if member governments or the European Union as a whole can use a stabilization fund to try to help lower income consumers in, in Europe weather this problem. I don't think they should be subsidizing energy because that just makes the problem worse. I mean, you have to conserve energy use at this at this moment uh, altogether. But if they, but if we have a continued restraint or constraint on energy coming out of Russia, if we can, if Europe can uh, subsidize its its population so that uh, the the poorest people in Europe and and poor and lower middle income households don't have to cut back on the spending, then I think Europe will be okay. But it's uh, yeah, it's a big ask. It's, it's, it's traditionally been difficult for Europe to get its act together in these things fast enough. But we'll, we will see um, over the next uh, few weeks and months. Yeah, the policy response here will be very important. And, you know, later this month, we are getting an FOMC meeting where it's widely expected that the Fed is going to raise interest rates. Uh, Dr. Kelly, do you think the situation changes Fed calculus? Yes. Um, and in fact, we already saw that last week. I thought it was very interesting that uh, when Chairman Powell was speaking in front of the House Financial Services Committee, he made a statement, um, as he normally does at the start, and then he was asked some questions. And then I noticed in answer to one of his questions, he was continually looking down at his notes because he wanted to say something very clearly. And what he said very, very clearly was that at the March meeting of the Federal Reserve, he would propose and support a 25 basis point increase in, in the federal funds rate. Now, prior to him saying that, there was a lot of speculation, well, maybe they'll go 50, maybe they'll go 25. But he's made it clear that he intends to propose that they go 25. And that's, a, that's very strong signaling. He also said that he did not want the Federal Reserve to add to uncertainty at this very uncertain moment. And I think that's also interesting. So what it tells me is that as the Federal Reserve moves forward, they're going to be more transparent about how fast they're going to increase interest rates and how they're going to reduce their balance sheet so they don't add uncertainty and volatility to markets. And they're also going to go a little easier on it um, until they know that they're, they're out of the woods. They're, they're not, I'm, I'm glad to say the Federal Reserve does not regard a spike in energy prices caused by this kind of supply shock as really a reason to... Um, raise interest rates more quickly. Yes, you get more inflation out of it. And there's nothing you can do about that in the short run. But I think the Federal Reserve realizes that they need to be 
um, somewhat more supportive of the economy in the short run and supportive of particularly financial markets, which are being buffeted by this. So I think it has already had an impact on Federal Reserve policy. It might have an impact on fiscal policy, too. We'll have to see if if there's a, if the uh, reconciliation bill that eventually goes through Congress is a little bit more generous because of this. But I think we will see a policy response. And again, that probably provides an extra layer of protection to the U.S. economy. Hopefully policymakers are our friends in all of this. Uh, Well, thank you, Dr. Kelly. And to wrap up, I'm going to go around the table with some rapid-fire questions. Uh, General Mastin, I'll start with you on this one. What are some of the long-term implications of all of this in terms of geopolitical relations? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, the world certainly is now more solidified against Russia than it's ever been since NATO was formed. Um, Russia slowly, gradually has worked their way back into uh, the world economy, especially with the, f- the fall of the wall uh, under President Gorbachev in 1990. And Russia had the opportunity, I think, to, to really make something of it. But now you've got not just Europe unified against NATO, uh, against Russia, you've got the world unified against Russia. That calculus is going to be transferable to China as well because of the aggressive actions they've uh, behaved with over the last decade, particularly over the last couple of years. I think both those are going to uh, play against uh, Putin's hand. I think you're going to see now for the first time since the wall fell in 1990 that particularly European NATO countries are going to increase their defense spending, uh, which means it will be harder and harder for him to to get a leverage point. I think other countries on the Pacific Rim and so forth that, that have the same type of threat will say, wow, we need to do like increase of our defense spending, and we really need to take this seriously. If Russia did it, there's no reason that China won't do it or North Korea, et cetera. And then I think you're going to have a reset within the nuclear exchange metric. How do we put together some form of agreements that gives us better confidence that we're not going to wind up in an inadvertent, or an accidental exchange of nuclear munitions. I think that'll impact the agreements that are going on right now, discussions with Iran. Uh, And I think it'll also impact the development, expenditure, and build-out of missile defense uh, systems that where it'll become much more popular now to say we came so close to a possible exchange of nuclear munitions, munitions. How do... Lots of countries in the world say, I want to buy into this missile defense protection to put this dome of protection over top of me as well. So it'll be really interesting how that affects the defense industry, the the economy, and obviously all the things that we were talking about today in regard to gas, oil, you know, inflation. I mean, some of these things, sometimes you never fully reset from an inflation period, and it never really goes back to the norm that you wanted it to be. Thank you, Mastin. And and David, I'll turn to you. What is your sense on where energy markets will settle out here? Well, trying to predict near-term oil prices is is impossible. Um, (laughs) But as as a long-term fundamental investor, the key really is capital investment. And so what do we see? Uh, For for traditional energy, we're likely to see more LNG and related infrastructure and probably a better appreciation for for oil. Um, But there's no doubt uh, that the energy transition is underway. And, you know, a situation like this can really help accelerate structural change. And so I think we'll also see an intensification on uh, electric vehicles and renewables and decarbonizing uh, the energy environment. 
So overall, I think the outcome is a more resilient global energy infrastructure um, that depends on, you know, maybe a more healthy respect for fossil fuels, but as well as a greater, uh, greater uh, capacity in the area of renewable energy and its impact on transportation as well as power generation. Mm. Yep, that might be one important silver lining um, of all of this in, in the long term. Um, and then finally, Dr. Kelly, history tells us that markets often shrug off war. That's not to say that this time won't be different, but what is your advice for investors in navigating this environment? Well, the first thing is that long-term investors should remember that they're long-term investors. Uh, and, you know, under most scenarios, I mean, this is a horrible situation. And I think there's a lot of pain and suffering, unfortunately, that's likely to transpire before we're done with it. But the most likely scenario is we reach some sort of equilibrium down the road and one in which energy prices come down a bit and economic growth around the world um, stabilizes and picks up. And and financial assets will, will reflect that. And so... I think there, there are two things. One, make sure you've got an appropriate for a long-term investment strategy and don't get too um, too thrown off your, your game by short-term events. It's impossible to time markets. It's impossible to time a lot of this stuff in terms of events. And it's very hard to figure out how markets are going to react in the short run anyway. And the second thing is just be very diversified because you really don't know what the next thing, big thing to hit you is going to be. And I think that really is a history of the 21st century. I mean, if you go back to um, 9-11 or the great financial crisis or, or the, the pandemic and now Ukraine, they're all different kinds of crises. None of them could be quite seen in advance. You could sort of see something growing, but it was very hard to see exactly what was going to happen. Um, and they all come from different directions. And, and if you know what a problem is going to be, you can hedge against it. You could buy one specific asset, which will tend to do well if that bad thing happens. But if you don't know where the next hit's going to come from, you just need to be diversified. And I think uh, long-term investors should also remember that. I am optimistic in the long run that uh, you know we'll get through this. And when we get through this, the global economy will resume steadier, hopefully more boring growth. Uh, boredom sounds wonderful to me in terms of, uh, in terms of global events right now. Um, but in the short run, you have to be diversified because you just don't know what direction the next shock could come from. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. I'm glad we could end it on, on a light note. Uh, well, thank you all for, for joining us today to discuss such an important topic. I've learned a ton. I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um, so thank you uh, for joining us and for everyone tuning in. On our next episode, Dr. David Kelly will be joined by J.P. Morgan Global Market Strategist Jordan Jackson for a deeper dive on the Fed following the March FOMC meeting and what implications the Russian invasion of Ukraine may have on global monetary policy. Until then, we invite you to read or listen to David Kelly's Notes on the Week Ahead podcast, also available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, where every Monday he shares commentary on the latest in the markets and economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. And for even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to his content on LinkedIn, provided in the show notes. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. 
Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.